And we're back. Welcome back to the Sportsball.com podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Williams. We've got a lot to get into today, so let's just jump right in. So first, I wanted to talk about the Giants and their uh, most recent offseason acquisition, in which I think they finalized their outfield. In what will likely be the final move of the offseason, the San Francisco Giants signed center fielder Austin Jackson to a two-year, $6 million deal, with the potential to raise it to an $8.5 million deal based off of some incentives in his contract. Now, I'm pretty excited about this deal. I'll get into it in a uh, couple minutes. But I thought there were some stats that you should probably know about that would make you excited about it too. So he's coming off one of the best seasons of his career and is a very cost-effective player to fill a hole that the Giants desperately needed. While he's over 30 years old, in a way, the Giants are actually getting younger. Last season, he was incredible facing left-handed pitching. He hit 352 with a 440 on-base percentage against lefties with four home runs and 15 RBIs. Now, because he was so good against lefties, this opens the door for a platoon with the highly tattered prospect, Steven Duggar, early this season, actually, who hits better against right-handed pitching. And I think I've already touched about this, touched upon this in the last, uh, in the first episode of this podcast, where I said Bruce Bochy and Brian Sabian already said that they thought Duggar was already major league ready, but he just needed some time in spring training to prove himself. So I'm excited to see him, and uh, Austin Jackson should do a pretty good job manning center field. Uh, he has 111 career stolen bases, which means he'll provide some much-needed speed to the leadoff position, while also providing solid defense in our big center field over at AT&T Park. Now, as I said before, I really like this signing. He's an eight-year veteran coming off one of the best seasons of his career and is on a very team-friendly contract. And what I really like most about his contract is it allows for the Giants to stay out of the luxury tax this year, which was a pretty big deal for them. And it means next year, because they won't be in the luxury tax this year, it gets reset. So they'll have a chance to make a run at big-time free agents like Bryce Harper or Manny Machado in next offseason. Now, I don't think I don't think they'll land him, but I think it'll be fun to watch him try. And so now, the Giants' offense is uh, is complete, I think. I don't think they're going to be able to land another center fielder that'll do a better job than Austin Jackson will, even though they're still looking. And I think Bobby Evans actually did a pretty solid job of building an exciting lineup this year that could potentially compete for a playoff spot. Um, and he did it without committing too much money to the future, which I th- is always a good good idea with our aging team. And it'll be interesting interesting to see how Bruce Bochy will set the lineup because I can't remember a time where we had so many productive hitters in the same lineup. And with the lineup, there are a lot of possibilities that make it pretty exciting. And now the Giants have much more protection for guys like Buster Posey, Brandon Belt, and Brandon Crawford. And I, was, I would actually expect them to have the bounce-back years that the Giants front office expects them to have now because... There's a lot less pressure on them. I know it doesn't sound like that big a deal, but they have a lot less pressure on them with more opportunities to drive and more run thanks to guys like Andrew McCutcheon and Evan Longoria, who have been very productive, solid hitters throughout their major league career. And so now, with pitchers and catchers reporting in less than one month, they, they uh, report on February 13th, I couldn't be more excited about the current state of the Giants. I know they're getting old, but I'm excited to see how this lineup that Bobby Evans put together handles itself in the NLS this year with the uh, competition it's going to have with the Dodgers, the Diamondbacks, and the Rockies. I think it's the most competitive division of baseball, and I think now we have a chance to run with anybody, especially if we can all stay healthy, which was the problem last year. Um, oh, there's one more thing I wanted to say about um, about Austin Jackson, and it's said on, a, on, so on BaseballReference.com, where I go to get all my stats and stuff. They rank players or they calculate all their 
stats down to basic number so they can have a similarity index, if that makes sense, so they can compare how a current player hits to someone in the past or who they're most similar to. And who Austin Jackson is most like is former giant Angel Pagan. I don't know. I thought was, I just thought that was pretty funny. You might not, but we haven't had Angel Pagan for a couple of years now, and I don't think he's he hasn't been in the league for a couple of years, but he was a pretty solid hitter for the Giants. I think he wasn't really beloved in the clubhouse, but he was a solid enough hitter, and I would like to see an, a hitter hit pretty similarly to he, him. And I think Austin Jackson can do a pretty good job. So there isn't really much Giants news right now because spring training starts in a couple of weeks and the free agent market, other than Austin Jackson signing, is nothing's really happening. So I thought we'd go talk about the Warriors. So let's do a quick recap of their recent action. Since we last, since I last recorded a podcast, they've played three games. The first one, they beat the Chicago Bulls 119-112 last Wednesday. Clay Thompson had like 38 points. I think it was a season high, if I'm being honest. And there's not really much to take away from that game. The Warriors were pretty bad in the first half, but they took over the game in the third quarter to win the game, as they, as they tend to do nowadays. They just aren't really focused in the first half anymore and screw around, but it's fine. We win games. Though something did happen in that game, which is pretty troubling. Jordan Bell got hurt in the first quarter. I think he was trying to block, make a block. And he landed on his ankle and looked pretty bad, but it turns out it was just sprained or inflamed. It's one of the two. Um, and he's going to be out like two weeks minimum, I think. He's being reevaluated in two weeks. So that sucks because he was our most fun, exciting rookie off the bench, and he was a solid big man, but at least he didn't break it. Got to look at the bright side. The next game was the game which I think it was the most important of the three games they've played since the, since I recorded the first episode of the podcast. So they lost to the Houston Rockets on Saturday, 116-108. to And so that's the last time the Rockets and Warriors are going to play until they meet in the playoffs. If they meet in the playoffs, the Rockets beat the Warriors in the season series 2-1. to And so while the Rockets did win on, uh, on Saturday, they barely won, which I thought was the important thing. Because the Warriors were basically just throwing up on themselves for the entire game, but still managed to steal it with, while the Rockets actually played a pretty solid game the whole time. And what I mean when I said the Warriors were just throwing up on themselves the whole time is uh, Steph had a ton of careless turnovers, made the wrong pass down the stretch several times where KD would be wide open under the hoop or at the top of the key, and instead he'd pass it to a covered Clay Thompson who would just fire up a three. And Clay Thompson wasn't hitting any shots. Um, wasn't hitting any shots, um, so it wasn't. Normally, he can pull off those kind of passes because Clay Thompson can make up for those because he's an elite three-point shooter or just an all-time great shooter, but he and Steph both weren't shooting the ball very well, so it stood out. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. In fact, Clay and Steph actually were both pretty terrible, if I'm being honest, in that Rockets game. they uh, I think they were combined, no, not combined. Steph went 6 for 20 by himself with 19 points, and Clay went 3 for 11 with 8. Eh, yeah. So that's why I don't really put too much stake into that game, because they weren't very good. So um, so do I put much stake in the Warriors losing this game? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, it's highly unlikely that Steph and Clay will have as bad a game as they did on uh, Saturdays four times in a seven-game series. I just don't think it'll happen. And something that's getting overlooked is the Warriors were also playing their fifth and final game of a five-game road trip, so they were tired and looking pretty lethargic. And uh, 
Yeah, so that's basically what happened in that game. So some stuff about Houston, because I basically covered everything from the game, is that uh, they're now 18-0 with Clint Capella, Chris Paul, and James Harden in the lineup at the same time, which people are making a big deal, a pretty big deal out of it. I don't really think much of it. It's cool, I guess. But the 2016 Warriors started the year with a 24-game winning streak, and they lost in the finals. So I really don't put a whole lot of stock in NBA winning streaks anymore. My honest opinion about the Houston Rockets is that their style of play will not translate to the postseason. We saw this last year with the Cavs, where they got as many three-point shooters as they could to surround their MVP candidate LeBron James, and they got smacked by the Warriors in the finals. Players get hot, players get cold. And I think by the time the playoffs roll around, they'll be burned out thanks to Mike D'Antoni's style of running players into the ground. And also because Chris Paul has a tendency to get on his teammates' nerves. And I think that his relationship with James Harden is ultimately just going to fall through because Chris Paul's just too intense for me, to be honest. I think he takes it all too seriously, especially when games are out of hand. He just... He's just extra, if that makes if that makes sense. He does things he doesn't need to do. I don't know. And then the uh, so that basically says any everything for the uh, my opinion of the Rockets and that Rockets Warriors game. So then today I'm recording this on January 23rd. They just played the Knicks. They beat him thanks to a uh, a pretty strong third quarter from Steph. A pretty strong second half from Stephen Curry actually. They were down throughout the entire first half. They didn't have a lead for a single second. But uh, Steph got hot in the second half, and he finished with, like, 32 points. And I think he made, like, 8 of 15 threes after going, like, 1 of 8 in the first half. So that was pretty good. He was the only Warriors player with more than, like, 14 points, though, which was pretty interesting. KD was the next highest player with, like, 14. But he he also dished out a... KD dished out a season high, or career high, actually, 14 assists. But so really what happened with the Knicks game is they they were, again, just not able to make a whole lot of shots in that first half. But in the second, third quarter, they exploded because, as I said before, with that, uh, with that Bulls game, they don't really try a whole lot in the first half anymore these days, which is fine because the third quarter is always pretty exciting and then the fourth quarter is always garbage time. So it really shows that you don't need to pay attention for like more than 12 minutes of the game. But, again, there's not really much to take away from that Knicks game because not only are the Knicks not very good, but they also didn't have Chris Tepps, Porzingis, or Kyla Quinn. And those guys are two pretty big pieces for him. So they won, they won the game. KD got ejected again, actually. He, uh, he picked up two technical fouls, not for, like, fighting or anything, like everyone else is in the NBA nowadays, but uh, for just arguing with the ref. Um, they won the game 112-94. to if I'm not mistaken. But that's basically recapping all the uh, Warriors action from the last week or so since I last recorded an episode of the podcast. So I thought we'd take a trip around the NBA. Um, Talking about Cavs drama, things like the trade deadline, and quickly touch on the the all-star teams. So let's start with the Cavs drama because that's the most fun. So the trade deadline's approaching. And the, Caval- the Cavaliers are slipping. They've lost 10 of their last 13 games. And reports are that the team is uh, imploding. And to say that they're imploding actually might be an understatement, if I'm being honest with you. According to Woj, the Cleveland Cavaliers had a team meeting on uh, Monday, I think. 
in which many players aired their grievances towards one another, but most of the criticism was directed at Kevin Love. I think I talked about Kevin Love getting criticized. It might have been Isaiah Thomas in the last episode. Forget about it. Just ignore it. Move on. Um, so in that meeting, many players were questioning how legit the illness was that required Kevin Love to be pulled from the OKC loss, where they, uh, they lost 148 to 124. That's right. They gave up 148 points to a regular NBA team without overtime. That just goes to show you how god-awful their defense is. And so what Woj reported was that the team meeting was very emotional, which I think basically means LeBron and Dwayne Wade basically just yelled at the entire team the whole time and then turned Kevin Love into the scapegoat for all their team's recent problems because that's what they've done for the last four years ever since LeBron's come back to Cleveland. The thing is, though, there's an issue with turning Kevin Love into the scapegoat because he most certainly is not the biggest problem with the team right now. In the month of January, where the Cavs have been particularly bad, there have been many other issues that have resulted in them losing games. And one of these issues lies right on the shoulder of LeBron James because this month he slowed down and he's not putting up the same numbers he was earlier in the year where he was, everyone was talking about him having the best year of his life and they were just astounded he was still able to do this at age 32. But in nine games this January, LeBron James has a negative plus minus, and it's currently sitting at minus 12.1 for the month, which basically means when he's on the floor, the Cavs have been outscored by 12.1 points. And so something interesting about LeBron is that his field goal percentage has declined with each passing month, and this is the fourth month of the season. And his percentage on two-point shots is not much of the issue, but it's his numbers show a slight decline in his overall field goal percentage. He started off in October with 58.6%. In November, he was still there, 58.1%. December, he dipped. December, dropped 6%, then to 52.4%. In January, 52.3%. Now, that's pretty good. And that's because he can just bully his way to the basket every time. The real culprit for the decline and the reason why it's, uh, why it's as low as it is is because his three-point shooting has just been abysmal as of late. He started the season blisteringly hot from three. I think his high was like 49%. Or no, it's like, I think it was 43% in, uh, in November. And he shot over 40% in October too. But after uh, November, where he shot 43%, he fell off a cliff. In December, it dropped to 34.6% from three. And in January, it's been even worse at 20.6. And he's making less than one three per game at this point, which just isn't how to win in this day's NBA. And his shooting decline has actually led to him posting less points per game than any other month as well at 22.8 points per game. Whereas before this month, he's scoring 27.23 points per game. So that's like a, it's a five-point swing from, uh, from before this month where he's Coincidentally, he's also turned 33, so you can say that he's declining as he's turned 33. But I really wouldn't put it that. I think it's more of a down month, but it's one of the reasons for the Cavs' struggles. And that's obviously not the only problem. There are other deep-rooted issues with this roster, and they are primarily on the defensive end, where nearly all their players struggle. This team is just too old. This team is just too old. And as players age, their desire to play solid defense lessons as they focus their energy on being more explosive at the offensive end. And most of the Cavs' high-profile guys have to rely on their explosiveness on the offensive end. LeBron's game is based on being explosive enough to get to the hoop at any time. 
Dwayne Wade's game is best around the hoop and in the mid-range game. And Isaiah Thomas's game is based on his ability to find a hole and keep his defender guessing, giving him space to pull up from deep. And now that their core is aging, they can't rely on all this explosiveness. And so their frustration comes because of that, and now they're attacking teammates. And another report from the recent meeting from Frank Isola of the New York News, or New York Daily News, the one leading the charge against Kevin Love was Isaiah Thomas. As I said before, Kevin Love was the scapegoat. And so me personally, I think that this is hilarious. Before the return of Isaiah Thomas, Kevin Love was averaging 20.2 points per game and 10.2 rebounds on 47% shooting. And it is at this point well known that he's much better and motivated as a second option rather than a third option. And now that Isaiah Thomas is back, in the seven games he's played in, Love is averaging just 13.9 points, 7.1 rebounds, and is shooting below 40%. It's pretty telling to me. It's clear that Isaiah Thomas is taking the open looks that Kevin Love was getting, and he's not, he's not able to get in the rhythm and score like it was before. It's obvious. It's the same. It's, it's basically what Chris Bosh predicted what was going to happen when Kevin Love went to uh, Cleveland in the first place because he was in the same position when he was in Miami. Or not Kevin Love was in that position, but Chris Bosh was. You know what I meant. But the thing is about Isaiah Thomas and why it's so funny that he's the one calling out against or leading the charge against Kevin Love is that he's been terrible since coming back from injury. He's averaging just 16.1 points per game, 3.6 assists, while shooting 39.6 overall and 29.2% from deep, all of which are well below his career average. And all that's fine. You need to get into the rhythm, but the problem is he's shooting 14.5 shots per game, which is way too many, and he's taking opportunities away from guys who actually need it. Kevin Love is only shooting 13 shots per game, and he's having a better year shooting the ball than his career average in nearly all offensive categories. And so the bottom line is that Isaiah Thomas needs to be taking less shots. And if I have a hot take for you, actually, about this. Let's, let's get to that. My hot take is this about the Cavs. To get to a place where the Cavs can compete for a title this year and have a real shot against the best teams, they need to get rid of Isaiah Thomas. He's clearly a problem with the chemistry. He's a liability on a defense that the Cavs can't afford, and he takes shots away from the better shooters. If I'm being honest, if I, in my honest opinion, I think they should try to flip him to the deadline. I don't think his trade value is all that high, but if they could throw him in and try to help him get the guys that they want from the Kings or from the Clippers at this point, I think it's worth it. He's clearly a cancer to their to their uh, locker room, and he just isn't he just isn't good enough to to play against the Warriors, which is what they need to build against. And so, moving away from Isaiah Thomas and the locker room drama, at least temporarily, there was an, also an, uh, an interesting situation after a game a couple days ago where LeBron had a pretty interesting quote about his coach, Ty Lu, where he didn't come out and actually defend him to the media while the media was questioning his job security. As this isn't a new thing. People have been questioning Ty Lue's fitness to be an NBA head coach for years now, but I think this was the first real time that LeBron hasn't actually just full-on defended him. And so the quote was, I would hope he doesn't get fired, but I really don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with our team. I have no idea what conversations have been going on. I've been trying to stay as laser sharp as I can to keep my guys ready to go out and play. 
Now, what does that quote mean? In my mind, it means that Ty Lue is as good as gone. I think the Cavs are going to fire him soon. And I'm even more convinced of that because the Grizzlies fired David Fisdale early this year. And some of you might not know the connection between David Fisdale and LeBron, so I'll, I'll fill you in right here. Fisdale was an assistant coach while LeBron was in Miami, and LeBron questioned his firing on social media when it happened earlier this year. And it makes all the sense in the world, actually. He ran the Grizzlies, who were a defensive-minded team. And I think he could potentially help, out, help put in a system that could help right the ship on defense as much as possible. Now, it isn't possible, but it'd be fun to see him try. And now, moving away from the uh, coaching drama and back to the Isaiah Thomas, I think it's become pretty clear that either Isaiah Thomas or Jay Crowder has become the source of all the recent leaks from the Cavs. Now, I'm not the only one who thinks this. Most of Twitter believes it's Isaiah Thomas, and it's actually become a meme. But, and I'm inclined to agree. Because as much as the Cavs have struggled in midseason in years past, leaks never got out as much as they have this year or have been nearly as detailed. And the only difference between this year and last year, other than some guys like Jeff Green, who doesn't really talk to the media all that much, has been Isaiah Thomas, <coughs> who is very fond of the media, having his own little docu-series about him being traded to the Cavs on the Players' Tribune. And he talks to reporters all the time, and he's pretty active on social media and all that. So it wouldn't surprise me if he's the one leaking all this to the, uh, to the media. That's probably enough Cavalier slander for now, if I'm being honest. I feel like I've spent the majority of these first two episodes talking about the Cavs, so let's move on to some other NBA stuff. Um, let's shift gears to Milwaukee. So the Bucks just fired their head coach, Jason Kidd, yesterday. Now, I don't really watch many Bucks games, but what I do know is he was very unpopular amongst Bucks fans. Yet, he was very popular among his best player, Giannis Ante... I can't pronounce his last name. The Greek Freak. You know. The whole situation feels a lot like the Mark Jackson Warrior situation to me, and I think that this job opening will attract the best coaches and be the most appealing this offseason. They'll have a chance to rebuild, or not rebuild, they'll have a chance to build a championship-caliber roster around one of the NBA's best and brightest young players, Giannis, the Greek freak. And I think that's basically it for NBA drama since I last recorded the podcast. Nothing else really happened. There were a couple other fights, but they're, I don't really remember them all that well. Um... They don't have a good story behind them, good storylines like that Houston Rockets fight did. So we'll just move on to the next topic here, where I wanted to talk about the NBA trade deadline. So I think I mentioned earlier that the deadline's on February 8th. So as the date approaches, the more trade rumors begin to swirl. And currently there are already plenty of deals being floated around, so I thought I'd give my commentary on some of them. Now the first one is George Hill to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, just a heads up, the Cavs are related to, or linked to everybody. So don't be surprised if I say they're Cleveland Cavali- the words Cleveland Cavaliers like at least 20 or 30 more times over the next couple minutes. So George Hill to the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavs reportedly want the aging point guard who's just toiling away with the Knicks right now. And here's the thing. The players that the Cavs would reportedly be willing to give away to the Kings are Amon Shumpert, Channing Frye, and maybe even Derrick Rose. 
and I have one question for the Kings regarding this potential trade. Why? You could trade him somewhere else and get such a much better return. The Cavs are basically... The Cavs can basically only offer you old, washed-up players who can't play effectively anymore. They aren't going to give you the Brooklyn pick, because if they trade it at all, it's going to be trying to swing it for a bigger name, like DeAndre Jordan or Lou Williams from the Clippers. And frankly, George Hill isn't worth the Brooklyn pick. It just doesn't make sense to you. You could send him to another team out east. And I don't... To be complete... I don't understand why any team is even talking to the Cavs. They can't offer you anything good other than that Brooklyn pick. I'll get get more into that after I talk about their next rumored trade with the Cavs, is that they want both Lou Williams and DeAndre Jordan from the Clippers. The Cavs have been linked to uh, DeAndre Jordan since offseason, I think. He'd give them a nice rim protector, and Lou Williams is a really really good scorer. I think he put 50-something on the Warriors a couple weeks ago. But the Cavs would have to offer the Clippers the Brooklyn pick. And the thing with the Brooklyn pick is right now it's basically insurance if LeBron leaves. Because if he leaves, then you're going to have a guaranteed top 10 pick in the draft to help build around or maybe just slide into the rotation with a guy like Kevin Love. Or if you can extend Isaiah Thomas, if you even want him, you could slide him right in there and build a team around that and still have a decent team. If they trade him, then there's no insurance for next year because if you lose, I think LeBron's gone. I think the only way you keep LeBron is if you win. I don't think Lou Williams or DeAndre Jordan helps you win. And so they'd have to offer the Clippers the Brooklyn pick and probably some other players like maybe J.R. Smith, who I don't know why anyone would want. Maybe Isaiah Thomas. I also wouldn't want him. And that's the thing. Outside of the Brooklyn pick, I don't see the appeal in this trade for the Clippers. The Brooklyn pick will be a top 10 pick, but you're also giving up two all-star caliber players for it. So as well as accepting washed-up players that can't play, it, it it doesn't make any sense to me. So again, I ask, why? Why not send them, if you send them at all, to some other team. Like, I know DeAndre Jordan's picking up a lot of interest from guys like the Bucks, who I mentioned earlier. They want, him, they want a rim protector alongside Giannis so he can focus more offensively, which makes sense. I'm sure Lou Williams could get a massive return for, from literally any team. Why deal with the Cavs? You could... If, if NBA GMs really want the parity that they claim they do, why would you make a deal with the Cavs? You could basically... And LeBron's reign in the East if you traded those guys instead of to the Cavs to a contender in the East or a contender in the West. They could beat LeBron in the playoffs. He'd leave. You no longer have to deal with him in the East. He'd go to Houston. He'd go to San Antonio. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. They can't offer you anything in return, anything of value anyways, outside of that Brooklyn pick, who might not even end up being that good. Don't make a deal with the Cavs. It's not worth it. And so the next thing is actually pretty interesting, and it has to do with the NBA, NBA trade deadline, too. And then there was a report. It's this. There was a report that came out a couple days ago that Kawhi Leonard is reportedly unhappy with the San Antonio Spurs. His rehab process is reportedly frustrating him as well as the team. And the word on the street is he wants out. Now, this would be very interesting. He has the potential to be a league MVP. I mean, hell, he was a finalist for the award last year. Now, he's coming off an injury, 
and hasn't been nearly as good this year because of that injury, but I think any trade for Kawhi would almost certainly be worth the risk. He got injured last in the playoffs last year in Game 1 versus the Warriors when Zaza slipped under his leg. Uh, it's pretty comfort, comfort, or controversial. I won't really get too far into it because a lot of people have pretty raw feelings about that still. So we'll leave it at that. The question is, though, about Kawhi, is how much of his game is just a product of Greg Popovich's system and how much of it is just sheer talent? Because if it's just a product of the system, you're going to have to trade him for him to be truly effective to a team with a really good head coach. Now it was reported over the offseason that the Spurs were prepared to trade him to the New York Knicks, which would be interesting. I don't really think he'd be a good fit in the city. He's a pretty quiet guy. New York's a pretty loud city. But also, they don't have a, they don't have a very good head coach. And by, I'm sure he's fine. I watched him. They had a pretty good game plan against the Warriors today. So he was, he's a decent head coach, but he's not the same caliber coach that a guy like Greg Popovich is. So I don't think his game would be nearly as good. And since there are no reported offers on the table or any deals that I could really think of right now about Kawhi, I thought it'd be fun to list some teams that I think would be interesting to see him on. Now, the first trade, which I think would be very interesting, would be sending him to Indiana to play with the Pacers. I don't know how they'd get him there because it's really hard to place a good price on Kawhi at this point. He's probably worth, if you're going to trade him, a couple first-round draft picks and some decent NBA talent. But I think the Indiana Pacers would become a lot better than they already are. If you could pair him with a guy like Oladipo, they'd easily become one of the top three duos in the East. Um, you got Lowry, DeRozan, Kyrie and Horford, or Kyrie and Gordon Hayward when they come back. I think they'd be better than Bradley Beal and uh, John Wall in Washington. I think they'd be a very good fit. Especially because Oladipo's just thrived this year without having to deal with Russell Westbrook anymore. Which is good good for him, because Russell Westbrook sucks. I also think he's a pretty good fit for the city. He's a quiet guy. And Indianapolis is uh, not exactly New York or Miami, if you catch my drift. And so another team that I'd be very interested in seeing him play for would be Boston. And now hear me out. Because Boston's good and it might be hard to see them giving up any, giving up a lot of their pieces to get a guy like Kawhi. But here's the thing. Popovich is the best coach in the NBA by a long shot. And if you want to maximize Kawhi Leonard's value outside of the Spurs, you're going to have to send him to another great coach. And I think Brad Stevens of the Celtics is the next best coach in the league. If I'm being totally honest right now, having Kawhi on the Celtics would scare me. They are already one of the best defensive teams in the NBA. And Kawhi is a former Defensive Player of the Year. He'd be paired up with Kyrie Irving, who's a great point guard and could get him open shots. He's proven time and time again this year that he was not just living off of LeBron James' success. He's his own man. He can do, he can do what he wants. He'd be next to Gordon Hayward next year, who's a very good player, and he's gotten better every single year, and he's a proven scorer. That trio alone under Brad Stevens would scare me next year as a Warriors fan, and I'm not even counting a guy like Al Horford, 
who's a very solid, very solid player. I haven't seen him do anything in the playoffs, but he's a very solid regular season player. He's an all-star this year. And the thing that makes this deal the most interesting is that it's well known the Celtics have the most assets to be able to trade away in order to make this trade work. They've accumulated so many draft picks and good young players that I think they could actually make it, make it a fair trade for the Spurs and get them a decent return. So this scenario, I think it's unlikely, but it'd easily be the most interesting to me. And if I was Boston, I'd actually consider doing this over doing any kind of deal for Anthony Davis. I think Kawhi Leonard is much more proven player than Anthony Davis is, and he's hurt a lot less often. They play completely different positions, but that's just my two cents. <laughs> and we can move away from my fictional trade scenarios now, and we can we can briefly touch upon the NBA All-Star selections because those were announced today. So they were announced today. There were some notable snubs and inclusions. I won't get too far into it because I, I want to talk about this next week because it'll be closer to the All-Star game, so it'll be more relevant. But here are some things I thought were notable. The Warriors have four All-Stars for the second straight year, and I'm I'm like 95% sure that's the first time in NBA history that that has happened. So that's pretty cool. And some some people have been pretty upset that guys like Klay Thompson made the team because they think he's just riding off of the success of the team and the fact that they have like four, 38 wins at this point. But they're forgetting the fact that Klay Thompson's actually having his I think he's having his best year offensively, at least numbers-wise or percentage-wise. He's shooting better from from two. I think he's putting a career high from three. He's leading the Warriors in three points made. Easy selection. He should easily be an All-Star team. People questioning that are stupid. The next most interesting thing about the All-Stars... Sorry, I got in a little tangent there. <clears throat> the next most interesting thing was that Victor Oladipo was selected for the All-Star team after leaving Russell Westbrook. In fact... I think he's having an MVP caliber year. He, I think he's he's doing a great job in, on the Pacers. And it's pretty funny to see him succeed after uh, leaving Russ Westbrook because I was told all of last year that he was basically a scarecrow. And he, was, he could play the same kind of basketball without any arms. That's just me. Speaking of Russell Westbrook, his Oklahoma Th- City Thunder team features three perennial all-stars. Him, Paul George, and Carmelo Anthony. Want to know something funny? While Paul George and Carmelo Anthony have been mainstays in the All-Star game for years, something funny happened this year. Neither Paul George or Carmelo Anthony made it. You know what I have to say to that? Ah, that's pretty interesting. Ah, that's pretty interesting. Uh it just goes to show that Russell Westbrook makes his teammates worse. We've seen this with Kevin Durant. Left, got even more efficient. It's one of the best scorers the NBA's ever seen. James Harden left. MVP frontrunner right now. Victor Oladipo left. MVP caliber season. There's another guy who left Indiana. I think his name was like DeMontis Sabonis. Also putting up like four times as many points as he was last year. Even Enes Cantor is having a better year, and I hate that guy. In New York. He's, he's had a couple of really good games that have been notable. But he's not noteworthy enough as a person, in my mind, to, uh, to have remembered him. So there's that. Another thing interesting was that uh, Lou Williams of the Clippers did not make the All-Star team. I thought he should have made it. I understand why he didn't. He's, in a, very, he's a bench guy, and he's load, in a loaded Western Conference, even though he's been on just a tear recently. I think he was definitely a snub, but there were plenty of other deserving guys. 
I think it was. I think it'll. Uh, I'll I'll dive into I'll dive into this more next week on the next episode because I think I've talked about the NBA enough for now, and we'll be closer to the game, so it'll be it'll be, it'll be more relevant. And the selections were announced today, so I'll have more time to dig into it and find out all the details. So, with that, let's switch gears and talk about some NFL playoffs and get a super quick uh, preview of the Super Bowl matchup between the New England Patriots and Philadelphia Eagles. So first. Let's uh, talk about that Patriots versus Jaguars game. So I was right in my prediction that the Pats would win, but the way they did was not expected for me. Brady came back from a 10-point deficit. I didn't doubt that they were going to win the whole time. I had total confidence in, in them doing so. But the thing was about it, that there were several controversial penalty calls against the Jags that a lot of Twitter had a problem with. I didn't have a problem with it. I thought the game was officiated pretty fairly, and I thought the calls were right. And the only call that made me a little uneasy was when the refs blew a play dead when Miles Jack made that strip fumble on Deion Lewis as he was running up the sideline. So they blew the play dead after he picked up the ball and he was running it back. I thought he would have easily been in for a touchdown. It would have put the Jags up by like 17. I think the Pats are done. I think they'd move on. I think the Jags would have moved on to the Super Bowl. But the thing is about that play is I understand why they had to blow it dead. Because they had to review it. They had to make sure it was actually a fumble. But, as I said before, if they didn't blow the play dead, it's a Jags touchdown and the Patriots likely lose. And I can understand why Jags fans would be upset about that. But blowing that play dead is a standard procedure and not special treatment for New England. And frankly, if uh, if that same call was made against you, you'd be fine. And I'm I'm not a Patriots fan. I had no problem with it. Something that surprised me about this game was that Blake Bortles actually had a really good game, if I'm being honest with you. And even though they lost, I think in the long run, it's probably good for them to have lost. If you win that game and you advance to the Super Bowl, you have to stick with Blake Bortles for the next four or five years. And while he was good in that Patriots game and in the game against the Steelers and maybe a couple games this year, he's just not a very consistent guy. Coaches have said he forgot how to throw a football. He, his form is totally different than it was a couple years ago when he was actually decent. And I just wouldn't trust him with my franchise at this point. Now you have the opportunity to go chase a high-level quarterback in free agency. Me personally, if I was them, I'd go after former uh, Redskins quarterback Kirk Cousins gifted passer, and we're surrounded by a solid offense, he can be elite. We saw that when he was surrounded by guys like Pierre Garçon, a healthy Jordan Reed, Deshaun Jackson. He was great. But the thing is, he's better than Blake Bortles, no questions necessary. So like I said, I expected New England to win this game, so this wasn't really surprising to me, and I think it makes the Super Bowl a much more interesting game. I don't know how excited I would have been about the Super Bowl if the Jags had won. Uh, there just aren't many storylines behind it. I thought Jalen Ramsey would have given a couple good pregame interviews prior to the Super Bowl that would have hyped it up a little bit, but I think it's ultimately better for the NFL if the Patriots are playing again. It just is. All right, so the next game was the Eagles versus the Vikings. Now... I could not have been more wrong in a prediction 
than I was in this game. I predicted that the Vikings would have outlasted the Eagles and won 24-17. I thought that Case Keenum would be able to make more out of his weapons than Nick Foles would. And I thought the Vikings defense would shut down the Eagles offense because that's what they did all season. Oh, man, was I wrong. Nick Foles was incredible for the Eagles. It looked as if he rolled out of bed on Sunday morning and forgot it was 2018, and he thought it was 2013 again. And for those of you who don't know, Foles was sensational in 2013, going 8-2, throwing for 27 touchdowns to only two interceptions. And he was just as absurd on Sunday, completing 26 out of 33 passes for 352 yards and three touchdowns. I think he was perfect in the second half. He went like 11 for 11 with like 156 and two touchdowns. It was great. it was absurd. He looked poised and confident, and there were two throws in particular that were just incredible to me. He just closed his eyes and heaved a long touchdown pass to Alshon Jeffrey for a touchdown. It was like 61 yards or something. It wasn't 61 yards. That was the Minnesota miracle from last week. It was, it was a long touchdown. But he was able to avoid pressure, and he just threw up a prayer. There was a slow-mo in the, uh, on the broadcast where he just wound up, and it, he looked like a little kid playing like football on the playground in like second grade or something, trying to make a deep throw, and by deep throw back then, I mean like 25 yards, but he like wound up all the way, and he just let it fly, and it was a touchdown. It was actually pretty elegant, to be honest. And the other pass that impressed me, most from that game was the flea flicker touchdown to Torrey Smith. It was just an absolute dime. The flea flicker didn't uh, didn't fool any defensive backs, and there were two guys covering Torrey Smith, and he just threw it where no defensive back could grab it. And it was frankly just an awesome throw. I it was great. It was nice to see Torrey Smith catch that touchdown too after after leaving San Francisco after a couple of years. He was a good 49er. Um, now, the game wasn't exactly all Nick Foles. In fact, the Eagles really got going thanks to a pick six by Patrick Robinson after the Eagles got shut down on the first drive of the game. The Vikings came out, opened the game, quick bang, 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 touchdown drive. Case Keenum threw a dime to Kyle Rudolph in the end zone. And then the Vikings just shut the Eagles down on offense, got a three and out, and I think. And the Vikings were driving again. And I, I thought the Vikings, if they scored again, I thought they had that game. Eagles got some pressure on Case Keenum, threw a pick. Patrick Robinson caught it, reverse field, scored. After that, it totally took the wind out from underneath the Vikings, and I knew the game was over. The Eagles went on to win that game 38-7. I will repeat, 38-7. So I probably owe Eagles fans an apology for picking against them, and they clearly proved me wrong because... I thought they'd only score 17 points, and I thought they'd lose. But I guess that's that. I'll, I'll get it more into that. I'll get more into the Super Bowl matchup between the uh, Patriots and the Eagles next week, because there's no football this weekend, so I'll have, I'll have time to sit down and go through the numbers and break down the matchup and who I really like. I'm currently leaning toward the Patriots, but the Eagles showed me last week that I. Uh, I can't go with my gut anymore when I'm betting against them. So I'll go into that Super Bowl matchup next week so I can delve more time into it and figure out who I really think is going to win. All right, that's all I got for you today. 
We covered some Giants baseball, breaking down that recent signing of Austin Jackson. Then we went to the NBA, talking about the Warriors' recent games against the Bulls, Rockets, and Knicks, in which they beat the Bulls, lost to the Rockets, and beat the Knicks. We talked about the drama with the Cavs, broke down some trade rumors from around the NBA. We then briefly went to the NFL, where I said I was right about the Patriots, because I was, and I was as wrong as you can be about the Eagles, because I'm embarrassed. That was a lot for one podcast. I'll be back next week bringing you some more sports talk. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out my website, sportsball.com. That's sportsball with a Z. And check out some of my writing. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.